Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gives you inside access to how retail real estate's most successful leaders went from being an average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CASCM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. Carly Iacono is one of those people that you don't need to have a personal relationship with to come to the determination that she is impressive. Even if you just listen to her articulate real estate concepts on her CRE Fast Five series or watching her interview someone on a Secret Sauce episode, you know Carly is quite talented. How she got to where she is today as an SVP of investment sales at CBRE is a fascinating story that involves coordinating saving lives in the Hudson River to ensuring that there isn't a missing comma in a litigation document. Carly's multi-industry background leads to a great story for today's episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Could not be any more excited to have Carly Iacono on our show. Carly, how are you? Amazing. I'm great. How are you, Aaron? So happy to be here. Yeah, we're pumped to have you. Carly is a pretty big deal for those who have not, for some reason, been exposed to her. She's SVP or an SVP at CBRE in New York and does a tremendous amount with unbelievable quality investment sales. So we're pumped to have her. And let's just dive right into it. Carly, tell us about how you grew up. Where are you from? What was the family dynamic like? All right. We're going from square one. Here we go. Square one. So I was born in Northern New Hampshire, and then my parents got divorced when I was a baby. So they ended up moving to different states when I was one. So from early on, well, my whole childhood, really, I traveled a lot, moved a lot, lived a lot of places and traveled back and forth. I'm an only child, so spent a lot of time on my own talking to adults and going back and forth between my family. It was a pretty interesting childhood, but made me extremely resilient and able to talk to anybody, which was a skill I'm thankful for. Yeah, I would imagine given what you do for a living and it translates very well. So where did you grow up? Where did you spend most of your time? All over. So my dad and stepmom are in Alabama, the Gulf Coast. And my mom and I lived in Tampa, Florida. We lived in Asheville, North Carolina. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was probably the, the place I lived the longest. Went to school in Virginia and then moved to the New York area. Now we all understand <laughs> why you literally have zero accent. Like nobody could predict where you're from because you're not from one place. It all makes sense now. Well, I think that the Pittsburgh accent, which is quite strong, and the Southern Alabama accent, also quite strong, really just canceled each other out. There was no way you could have both. So it became completely neutral. And I'm really happy about that. I can relate to that because I went to school. Obviously, I'm born and raised in Charlotte. And I went to school, obviously, in the South. But my parents were Canadian. So it's like... Love it. Yeah, it's kind of cute. <laughs> you can't have both accents. Sometimes people give me shit that I have a little bit of a Southern twang when I'm up North. And then some people when I'm in the South are like, oh, you sound like Yankee. I'm like, I can't win. But yeah, you have the most neutralized accent. Now, as amazing as that is, you said you went to school in Virginia. Where'd you go? And how'd you end up there? Washington and Lee. and I ended up there because I went to tour a bunch of schools, uh, Vanderbilt, Duke, Emory, a lot of schools in the South that I was considering applying and interested in. And I stepped on the W&L campus and was like, oh my goodness, this has to be the most beautiful, friendly, warm place I have ever experienced in my life. Idyllic, really. And it's because W&L has something called the speaking tradition where you are expected to say hello and greet everybody that you pass on campus. That is just the culture of the school. So as a a newcomer, someone who's never been there, it's just this environment that you're not used to. Everyone stops. How are you today? You're having a great day. Nice to see you. Just everybody. And they also have something called the honor code, which just creates this environment that I think is really hard to find in today's world. And it was extremely attractive. So I applied early decision, got in, and the rest is history. Makes sense. So I want to dig into that a little bit more because clearly you just obviously just couldn't get into Alabama, which is why you didn't apply the, there. Um, Tuscaloosa hmm. is the prettiest campus in the world. I forgot to apply. That's what I forgot is. to apply. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we call it the Harvard of the South. Got it. The southern part of Alabama, specifically. So obviously, you were a phenomenal student. There's not 
much to unpack there. If you get into Washington and make a decision, the other schools that you mentioned that you're applying to were not so shabby either. Wasn't quite Alabama, but they're pretty good. So what else did you do growing up as a kid? What were your other activities or hobbies that you were So I was president of our debate team. I was not the coolest kid, it's for sure, but worked really hard, loved debate, went to nationals. That was one of my passions. Also ran cross country and track. Was pretty slow, but really put my heart into it and still love to run to this day. So those were two of the main activities. I also was involved in every club you can imagine. Complete overachiever. I had to be involved in everything and try everything. So was in a lot of different types of clubs as well. Would you say you spent more time on debate or with your running? Both, right? Because they were at different times. So every day we had practice, whether it was cross-country traction in the season. And then we had debate during the day and then we have tournaments. So they were complimentary. So the debate thing is an unbelievable skill set. It's not something that I'm familiar with outside of watching the great debaters. But talk to us. There's an underlying reason why I'm asking this question. There is a method to madness. But what would preparation and practice look like for debate? Like, obviously, as a runner, or and we've had a ton of athletes, former athletes on the podcast, and there's themes there. But I'd love to dig into that debate a little bit more because it was the first thing you mentioned, A, and it's, it's unconventional, which I love. What does that look like to people who don't know anything about debate? Which, hand up, that's me. I don't know much about how that would work. So the world of forensics is actually pretty broad. There were different events. Congressional debate was something that I really liked and excelled at. And you are basically debating different sides of bills. And then you are convincing other people to nominate you for different positions within Congress to debate against other people and hope that your your view is prevailing. So it's scored based on, number one, how many people you can get to your viewpoint how you present the points that you make, uh, so actual content, but then also the human element of how well can you convince everybody else in the room, aside from just the judges, that your position should be the prevailing one. So congressional debate was a lot of fun. I also did something called a duo, which is a more, I'm going to say, theatrical side of it, where you have a partner and kind of like a script that you present, which was a lot more fun, lighthearted. My partner and I actually went to nationals a few times. Just a great, great time. So that was a different element. And then there's, I forget the names of all the other debates, but more one-on-one about different topics. And a topic would be brought up for that season when you would prepare point, counterpoint, you do practice with your, your team you know, during school and try to unpack and kind of break apart the argument. Damn, it's impressive. Good skill set. My daughter's just getting into it now. I'm really excited about. I would say so. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. In the three or four pieces of notes that I have, which is unfortunately not even a joke, it's very little bit. It's you know, these conversations are meant to be natural, and organic. One of the things I have written down, you know, making sure that we try to dig out what skill sets people were either born with or developed early on in their lives to be successful and to be sort of you know the seat that they're today and. Clearly, you've already reached the pinnacle of your career by being a guest on the one podcast, by the way. So, Oof, all smooth sailing from here, right? Yeah, exactly. Or downhill, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, but in all seriousness, it's so evident. It's so easy. Like, you're like, hey, I'm an only child and I can talk to anybody. Duh, pretty obvious natural skill set that would translate over well. And then, of course, this debate background, along with and something that I definitely want to touch on, and it's a consistent theme that we found with our guests is. Is your athletic career too. It sounds like you were just as committed on the running side. What did that look like for you? So that was really a test of fortitude because I was not that fast, but I don't give up. So I did move forward in the team through the years that I did cross country, but I was never the top slot. And I look back and I'm like, gosh, that was a lot of extremely painful practices where I just was not that fast. And at any point could have said, what in the world am I, why am I doing this? I'm clearly not going to get a scholarship. There is no educational benefit here, but I liked the team. I liked being part of it. And I liked pushing myself, which is for sure still part of who I am today. So it was a great experience to teach me to not give up, even though I didn't reach the level that I, of course, would have liked to. And it's just good for you. I think being physically active is 
absolutely crucial to a well-rounded life at any age. I couldn't agree anymore. And that obviously it's something you still carry with you today, given that you were still in the running, which I commend you for. So yeah, we jumped around a little bit. So you go off to Washington, Washington and we, excuse me, obviously excelled there, I assume, but tell us about your career there and what you studied and you know, take us along the story. I started out as a journalism major when I was a freshman. And then one year in, my father said, if you don't switch to the business school, we're not going to help you pay for school anymore. So just pretty black and white. Here's your path. We're not pretty harsh at that time. But I listened. And I was like, oh, I'm so mad. But okay, fine. I'll switch to the, the commerce school. So I did. And it, it really was a great move. So I ended up majoring in business with a concentration in marketing. I learned so much. The class sizes at Debbie Mellon are very small. You have very good relationships with your professors. I was able to do a senior thesis with my marketing professor on the effects of status consumption on different cultures. We ran a global study with his help, of course, through thousands and thousands of survey respondents. And we were really looking at how culture affects the way we buy things. I was grateful that the paper I wrote was published and I was able to speak at a few conferences abroad for the research. So I bring that up not to say that it was an amazing thing that I had done, but given that opportunity to look at education in a different way, I think was very special and unique. And the fact that the professor took so much time to assist me with a pretty far-reaching project that I, of course, thought I could pull off with no problem. I, ignorance sometimes helps, right? You're like, yeah, I can do that for sure. Senior in college, junior in college, whatever. But it really was that support that allowed me to look at education a little bit differently. And I think that was one of my favorite experiences there. That is amazing. Congratulations on that, even though it's been a little while. It's like a year, two years. No, exactly. Kidding. A little <laughs> while, just two years. So my question for you especially now that you're a parent, is are you thankful for your dad doing what he did? Would you change it? Like if you were in his situation now, how would you handle it differently? Like I'm very curious by this. That is a really tough question to answer. I often wonder what my other path would have looked like. Obviously, I love media. I love journalism. I love talking to people. So that's still there. Who knows? Who knows which was the right answer? I think for my kids, I want them to have a practical foundation and skill set that they can use in whatever career they decide to pursue. But does that require a certain major? I'm not sure that it does, but it requires a skill set, whether that be negotiation, finance. Some of these things I do think are crucial, but maybe it's achieved by just taking a few classes and not making it your core focus. I'm not sure yet. You'll have to let us know and if and when that day comes and one of your daughters goes off to school to wants to major in something that's totally in left field. And you're, I'm going to follow up with you on this when the time comes. Okay. I'm making a mental note. <laughs> Sounds good. So you transfer to the business school, have a ton of success there. What happens next? So then I took my first job, which was in New York City. It was litigation consulting. So I was working at a small consulting company and we were hired clearly not me as the new person in the firm, but our, our partners were hired as financial experts in legal cases across all different industries. It was exceptionally boring. I hated it, although it made me unbelievably detail-oriented. I used to get called in by my manager if there was like an extra space after a comma on a footnote on a page. It was that level of detail that we had to adhere to because all of these were exhibits for cases. So within the first week, I thought, oh, I can't do this. I just am given boxes of documents in Excel and I'm here until you know 11 o'clock at night later, just myself, like pouring through this stuff. This is miserable. But I told myself I needed to stay for one year because I didn't want to just leave without even really knowing what I was doing. So I left the company one year to the day, exactly on the day. That's how much I loved it. But I made it through, got promoted, and then, and then left. And then after that, I went into residential real estate, which was a pretty big leap coming from what was a very difficult finance job to get. You hated the gig so much. Like, What made you inspired to want to do it in the first place? 
Or was this by necessity based on the job market? Like, how'd you end up there in the first place? It was a really competitive job and hard to get. And I am ultra competitive. I've calmed down a lot through the years, but I was like, well, everybody's trying to get this job. I obviously need to apply and see if I can get it. And then I did. And it was like, oh, now what? But actually, even more interestingly, before that, my internship was at Arthur Anderson. So that's dating me right there, which for those of you listening are like, what is Arthur Anderson? One of the big five accounting firms that imploded while I was an intern. Fascinating experience. So I'm there in the middle of the Enron scandal. And we're getting recorded messages from the CEO as an employee, like, everything's fine. Don't listen. Like, this is great. You're all going to have jobs. Everything's safe. Don't believe anything you see in the media. So right during that summer, when I was an intern, all that was happening, we all got offers. My whole intern class got offers. The company imploded. And then E&Y, Ernst & Young came and gave everybody backup offers. So everybody went to Ernst & Young from Arthur Anderson in my class in DC where I was working, except for me. And I was like, I don't like accounting. Tax, no offense, super important industry. And I have a lot of respect for all the tax accountants out there. It just did not feel like it was going to be the best skill set for me. So then I thought, wow, okay, I didn't take this offer, which you spend a lot of your college career trying to get your first job, right? And I'm like, ah, now what? All right, I need to apply for everything in finance consulting that I think might be a fit and see where I land. So when I got the job, that was kind of the background on it. And it seemed more interesting than what I had been doing. But in reality, it's still just a lot of data management. It's all kind of the same at the the entry level. So you excel in school and you go after these highly coveted jobs, maybe because they were highly coveted and maybe not so much because you wanted them. Maybe you did. Who knows? And you have this prestigious background and you pivot to residential real estate, which again, like residential real estate does not require... It just doesn't. Like, let's just call it like it is. It doesn't require a business degree from Washington Lee and, you know, a background at a big four accounting firm. Like, it's not a necessity. So, what (laughs) switch went off in your head to make you want to do that? So, my family, my dad and stepmother are in residential real estate. So, I grew up going on meetings with my dad and we would show houses. He was involved in a lot of construction along the Gulf Coast, a lot of the condo buildings. He's been wildly successful within the Remax franchise. I mean, makes more money than most people I've ever heard of in residential real estate. Great, great businessman. So I grew up seeing what was possible in that realm. And it was really, frankly, the only thing I knew at that time to do. And I knew I could do it. And I figured, gosh, this would be a different lifestyle. I'd have control over my schedule. I've seen what's possible. Why don't I try this? So I went to Remax and I actually made, I stayed there one year. I made double the first year in residential real estate what I had made in finance my first year. And I thought, oh, this this is not bad. But I knew that it was not the right path for me. It was not the be all end all. And I had other skill sets that I wanted to use for my career long term. But it was a great, great learning experience. So clear things up for me because you were in New York with the consulting gig. Did you move? Hoboken. So I was living in Hoboken. So I went to the Remax office in Hoboken. Hoboken, New Jersey, for those who don't know. Correct. Where. Yeah. Sorry. Right outside the city. Nice. Okay. So how did you get in the door there? You just called up and said, Hey, look, my dad is a franchisee or an owner of a uh, location down in Alabama. Like, How did you finagle that? It's a much easier job to get than finance. Just going to say that. Yeah. So coming in saying, I have some family background in real estate. I also have a background in finance and I can talk to most people. I think you should hire me. That I think that was about it. Got it. And they hired me and gave me a shared desk and a phone, printed some business cards. And that was the extent of my introduction. There you go. There you go. Some quality training there. Which I mean, (laughs) we have heard that. This is obviously in residential, but we've heard that from so many... I've heard it from so many people in casual conversations and then even from a lot of our guests on this show. It's crazy. It's crazy how often that happens. Anyway, that's a side note. So you're up in, in Hoboken. You're slinging residential real estate. Had some success there. But you said you only did it a year. So what happened next? Then I moved to Alabama to work with my dad because I wanted to 
see the other side of the business. I wanted to understand more of the development piece. He works with a lot of out-of-town investors who come in buying second homes. I thought that was kind of interesting. So I decided to pack up my apartment, had a little dog, and everything I owned and drive down to Alabama. I'm going to move down there. While I do that, Hurricane Ivan hit. So I'm out of my apartment in Hoboken. I go to New Hampshire to visit my grandparents. I'm like, okay, then I'm going to turn around. Hurricane Ivan hit and decimated the area, absolutely flattened it. The National Guard came in, the streets were washed out. Everything was impassable for months. You cannot even imagine the level of destruction that happened during that hurricane while I was moving. So I couldn't get there. So I just visited friends in D.C. I kind of just tried to figure it out for a few weeks. And then my dad and stepmother who were living there got me a pass, like through the National Guard checkpoint so I could basically just get on the island. Like I cannot even explain how severe this hurricane was for this small area. So I get down there with this dream of selling expensive condos and investment property and everything is like completely destroyed. So instead of showing gorgeous waterfront places, I end up putting on hard hats and going into disaster areas and trying to sell people on what this will look like again once the insurance money comes in. And I know this building has no siding and, you know, be careful, don't get it too close to the edge. Like this is not safe or there's mold everywhere from the water damage. But in a year, this is going to be an incredible market. So that was a curveball, not going to lie. It was just in the time I was trying to get there, the whole scenario changed. But again, quite interesting. I think it made me a much stronger salesperson and was definitely a test of skill during that time. Wow. And all of this while you're basically a homeless nomad. <laughs> right. So I had somewhere I was going to live, which was destroyed. So my parents let me live with them, which you could imagine I was not super excited about it. Well, whatever I was, 22, 23 at that point. But of course, very, very nice of them. So I stayed with them until there was somewhere else that I, I could go that was open. How did their place hold up? Not that great. The front door blew off. They were in a, a high-rise condo building. A lot of furniture got sucked out. They stayed because they're crazy like that. Thank God they weren't injured. But I mean, it was such magnitude that a lot of the furniture was like sucked out of the doors and windows when everything kind of blew off. But they were fine. And uh, got the door back on, got some new furniture. And their building thankfully didn't sustain too much structural damage. So we could keep living in it. Wow. I just think about my days in Florida when I was living there. And I didn't realize this disease went up to Alabama where people are just so damn stubborn about sticking it out through these storms. I was the first one out. I still would be. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I've never understood that. And I doubled down on that thesis after I experienced being in a tornado in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So when you were talking about that, it was totally relatable as far as seeing a, a town get destroyed and I give you a lot of credit. You probably did it by force, really, because you didn't have another choice. You were all in on your career then. But I mean, having to sell that dream, I mean, you know, thinking about what a, seeing what a town's like decimated and then seeing, having the foresight to have the vision and selling that. And I'm sure you articulated that so well and had some success. So what was your tenure like there? What was your career like there? It was challenging. It was challenging for sure. I think the family dynamic was difficult. My dad is quite intense. The market was difficult, had success, but it was certainly, certainly a fight every day. But I learned some incredible lessons along the way, persistence, how to work under pressure. I'll tell you one quick story. There is a, a fantastic festival, which you may have heard of in Alabama called Mullet Talk at the Floribama. Right. Floribama, for anyone listening, if you haven't been, is this crazy place right on the Florida Alabama border. Super fun live music venue, bar. It's just it's kind of an icon right in the area. So every year they do this huge festival called Molotov. I was in my early 20s, so excited to go. Everybody I knew was going to be there. There was music. That Friday before Molotov weekend, my dad came in and he gave me a box of papers. And he said, you may not leave the office until you convince two of these beachfront homeowners to sell their property. Here is partial contact information for everyone in this one development, you may not leave until you accomplish this. And here are the parameters of the offers. You cannot go above this. Here are the terms. 
like that's it and walked out and i was like no these are gorgeous homes on the beach no one's going to want to sell these no one had even talked to us like i'm coming in cold and that was just like how in the world am i going to do this but we needed all these lots to build a condo building that one of his developers was working on and i guess we were going to partner on at some level so it was that sort of experience like there is no other chance but to succeed or choice there's no other option so that you could just figure it out so i literally stayed there for like days and i managed to get two of the owners i think actually three to sell and then sunday night when i finally accomplished this the festival was like basically over i left and went to the last like last band on sunday night and was so happy about it i really enjoyed Enjoyed my time there. And then Monday morning, eight o'clock, had to be back at the office. So it was that sort of intensity that I dealt with for my time there, which certainly shaped me, but was not going to be something I was going to do for forever. Sure. So what happens next? So then I moved back up to the New York area and decided to, this is a curveball. It's like, okay. I don't want to do residential real estate. I really don't enjoy the nights and weekends. And I, I would like to use more of the finance. So you're probably thinking, and this is when you go to commercial real estate, but it's not. So I decide at 24 that I'm going to start a boat company because I wanted to be an entrepreneur and control my destiny. So I started a company called Yacht Smart, which was based on Freedom Boat Club's membership model, but run a little bit differently. And I ran that for about seven years. And then I sold it to, I sold all the accounts to Freedom Boat Club, sold my boats. And that's when I pivoted and went into commercial real estate. Who did you sell to? Freedom Boat Club. So, oh, our clients in the timeshare were, it was a timeshare and also charter business in New York Harbor. So we had, it's amazing that it, it made money looking back because I knew nothing about boats at all. It started it from nothing. We had six boats, captains, deckhands, it was legit. It was it was actually really, really interesting business. And our clients were really finance guys from the city, endless money, endless client base. It was just a matter of how quickly could I scale and add more boats and add more support for the company. So why'd you sell? It was crazy. Stories that I could tell you for days of people beaching the boats in front of the projects in Queens at high tide, people crashing into the docks. It's actually a very, very difficult place to boat. One of the hardest in the country, maybe the world. Of course, I didn't know any of this when I started it, learned it through the time. But there's a lot of pilings and debris. So we were constantly having the props bent or taken off. The maintenance was very, very difficult. Also, the members were pretty high maintenance and it just became more work and more stress than I wanted to take on. At that point, when I sold the company, I had just had my second daughter and I'm on the docks, like managing this craziness. And I'm like, I need something less stressful and a little less crazy. Commercial real estate, perfect. There you go. Yes. And in comparison, that is the case, even though what we do day to day is nuts, but much less stressful than having someone call and say, you know, my buddy, we're anchored. My buddy just jumped off the boat and he's floating down the Hudson. We didn't realize the current was so strong. He can't get back. And I'm like, what? Uh, does he have a life vest on? Yes. Can you still see him? Yes. Okay. There's barges. There's ferries. Like, oh, you got to go save this random person floating down the Hudson, bobbing along, which we did. So things like that happened all the time. So definitely a different type of crazy. Wow. I didn't realize you were saving lives while you were uh, having a yacht business. I didn't. We sent the Coast Guard. They saved them. There you go. They Facilitating life saving. <laughs> I was trying to give you credit. I was giving you a little broker talk there. Yeah. So how'd you do financially? I mean, you did it for seven years and you yeah. were able to support two daughters, right? Exactly. So the business made money each year. Again, kind of shockingly given I had no idea what I was doing. But it did make money every year and then we came out net positive at the end. So I'm very grateful for that as a life experience. It didn't make as much as I, of course, was projecting or hoping. But the fact they didn't lose money even in the beginning, I think is miraculous. I think that has a lot to do with how you are as a business person and an entrepreneur in general. I don't think that's an accident, but kudos to you. That's impressive. So you sold your business and you were 
convinced that you wanted to go into commercial real estate. So why and what'd you do? So I went to interviewed a few places and and went to Mark's Vanilla Chap where I was at for a long time and went and interviewed. It was close to my house. They hired me, didn't have any experience really. And that's where I started out. At the time, there were not a lot of mentors in the office. I didn't want to join a team. So again, I was faced with, all right, I'm going to figure this out on my own. Go. And that is where it all started. So you walk into Marcus and Millichap. You don't want to be on a team. You're a little short for mentorship at the time. What do you do? Something happens. Like, what did you do? So I decide I want to sell retail only because it seemed like what I knew the best. Being a consumer, knew nothing about industrial or office, apartment. At, you know, I was like, all right, this seems to be logical. The whole business plan was really based just on like, ah, okay, this seems interesting. I think I'll do this. So my manager at the time told me I needed to database three counties before I could start cold calling. I was like, wow, kind of painful. You had to have a certain number of records, a certain there were all these metrics, right? So I finally get through doing all of that. And I go on my first meeting, which was a hilarious, a tiny mom and pop party planning shop. So they took my call. I go and they're like, yeah, maybe we'd want to sell. I go look at it, like falling down. Not good. And I came back and I, I think I valued it at like $200,000. I came back and I'm like, I'm not doing this to my manager. And he's like, no, no, just keep at it. I'm like, nope, new plan, new plan. I only want to sell national tenants nationally. How do I do that? What I didn't know at the time was my manager was brand new. No one told me that. So he was like, wow, this is a great idea. I don't think anyone's doing that. Of course, they were. But again, I didn't know any difference. I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. I'm going to do this. I'm going to have this net lease business plan and I'm going to sell nationally. No one's doing it. What year is this? 2014. So net lease retail at this point in time is a real thing. For sure. It's a real thing. For sure. Just no one told me. I didn't know. It was the worst kept secret <laughs> in your life. <laughs> I found out really quickly, let me tell you, but I thought this was just a great idea. So just too funny looking back. So I pivoted the business plan and start cold calling because that's what we had to do at the company. And that's in your DNA. Like this is not a novel concept. You're you're not the typical first day in commercial real estate person. It's like, how do I make a cold call? Like this was something that you clearly done quite a bit. Uh, certain, I would imagine with your yacht business and certainly with your residential days. So how did it go? What was that like? I actually hate cold calling. I had done very little of it. Surprisingly, it is. I do not enjoy it. I like adding value to people at all times. I don't like catching them off guard and giving them a pitch. It's just, I really strongly like it. So I was constantly in trouble my first year with management because I didn't do enough cold calls. At one point, kid you not, they said, we're going to have to take your chair because you've not made enough cold calls. Like take your desk chair. I did not have a standing desk to put this in perspective. <laughs> to which I was like, no, you're not. So we had a discussion about that. But those were the kind of push and pull that first year that I'm like, I am going to approach the business differently. Just give me just give me space. So I approached it a little bit differently than other people in the office. And my strength was networking in person and meeting people and getting to know people on a different level. And that's what I did. So I did the cold calling, not as much as I wanted, but I did the cold calling, but really built the business more on, on networking. Which is great. Well, it's not great that you don't like cold calling and that you were against it. For those of you that are listening that work at Zig, that is not gospel that we are preaching. We will <laughs> do it. No, it does work. My first two deals were from cold calling. I'll tell that story in a minute. It does work. I just hate it. So I want to hear that because look, sellers probably were aware of the fact that there's such a thing as a net lease retail business out there. And yeah, I mean, look, obviously you're incredibly impressive, well-spoken, but you had no experience. Like you call up the owner of a Chipotle or something and they're like, how many Chipotles have you sold? Your answer was none at the beginning. So how did you convince people to work with you? How'd you make a buck basically? Other than, well, the cold calling stories, we definitely want to hear, but how'd you do it? Your first couple of deals. So I'll tell this story. I think it was the first deal I closed and it is a pro cold calling story just for you, Aaron, just for you and everyone at Zig listening. This is for you. So I was doing the cold calls. Again, not quite as many as my would like, but I was doing them. I was putting my time in. 
And I called one client, I had my pitch, my value proposition, whatever that was at the time, right? That you, you memorize and go through. And I was trying to sell drugstores. So I, and of course I had no inventory. I'd been at the company for like two months and I managed to get a meeting with what turned out to be a pretty high profile owner in New York City who was in a 1031 exchange. And, he, and I was talking about drugstores and you know, I'd like to tell you about why this is a great investment. And he said, you know, I'd actually like to buy uh, Walgreens. Why don't you meet with me on this date and time? And I was like, great. Like that was partially luck. I'm not going to lie. Like my timing was good. I was talking about something he already wanted. And he was like, fine. And very short spoken, just like, okay, fine. Meet me here then. And I was like, amazing. So I, I'm very excited. I go tell my manager, I have this meeting. This guy wants to buy a drugstore. And he was like, okay, you need to bring someone with you. And I'm like, absolutely. So there was supposed to be two people that were going to come with me, someone from the investment sales side and a financing broker for this meeting. Both of them canceled the day of the meeting. So I'm like, oh, like something. And you're not canceling. No way. No way. No. So I'm like, all right, I'm going. So I go into the city, have my notes, have my drugstores, and I'm going to present and sell him. I go through my top three and why I think these are the best three drugstores he should buy. And he looks at me across this big desk and he goes, you know, you know what I like about you? I like that you didn't give me too much information. You just gave me what I needed to know. And this is it. And he goes, I want to put an offer on one of those, write it up. We'll talk again. Meeting done. And I was like, great. So reality, I didn't know anything else to tell him. I told him everything I knew. <laughs> so <laughs> I kid you not. I was like, that was it. So he was like, this is great. It's all I need to know. And I wanted to say, good. Thank God. And I didn't know how to write up an offer. So I had to go back and be like, I want to write up an offer. Like, what do we do now? What does this look like? So it was very much thrown in, but I was able to to get the answers to the questions I had, speak professionally and advise him. And, and I asked for help when I didn't know something. So that's really the key. It's not like I just made it up as I went. Each step, I was like, okay. And if I didn't know something when I was speaking to the client, I was very honest and said, let me get back to you shortly. First off, there's a couple of things to take away there. You just asked the question. Like sometimes, I mean, sometimes we'll have conversations here internally and somebody will just get off the phone with the property and they're like, man, I just had the best conversation. I called this guy cold and, or this woman cold and we had a, an extensive conversation about the rent and this and that. And I'll be like, great. Like how much do they want for the property? And sometimes no matter how great those conversations go, there isn't like that next actionable step. And by virtue of you not knowing what you were doing almost, you just asked like, hey, like you want to buy one of these basically. And thank goodness the guy was appreciative of it. But I do think there's a lot of value to that and not overwhelming people with information when they don't care. Sometimes they just want to know what the end product looks like. And then I guess the in classic Carly icon of fashion, this is about the time in the podcast where I asked somebody about an embarrassing story. And of course, because you're such a perfectionist and such an overachiever, your quote unquote embarrassing story still led you to like getting your first deal done. But over to our audience, and frankly, I'm really interested, is there an embarrassing story or what is your most embarrassing story from when you were first getting going? And this... And I'll leave it because you have such an interesting and unique background. I'll leave it open ended. Like it can be maybe the Remax days or whatever, but we got to humanize you a little bit because you're like on this pedestal of being ridiculously successful. We got to make sure we can laugh a little bit here. Oh, for sure. There's plenty. I think the key to being successful is putting yourself out there and, and trying. And it does not always work, of course. So early, this is. I think it was very embarrassing to me. You might not agree, but it is, I think, pretty funny. So early on at one of these networking events I was telling you about that I went to a ton of, I decided to speak or try to connect with every speaker. This was a NetLease conference in... I forget where it was, but NetLease specific. And so every panelist during the event, I would try to go talk to and introduce myself. Of course, they do not care what associate from whatever company Right, it's coming to connect with them. But I, of course, giving my business card, like keep in touch, right? They're never going to keep in touch. But I would always try. So at one, this was a CEO of a, a REIT who is very nice and has become a, a very good friend through the years, but did not know me, 
I was like, all right, he's getting lunch. I'm going to go stand in the lunch line behind him so I can talk to him. So I managed this completely dismissive, right? Like does not want to talk to me. So I'm trying, we're trying to find common ground. Basically, I just like wear him down. And I'm like, but very nice. And I'm very appreciative. And I was like, I want to work with more REITs. I was working with zero. I want to work with more REITs. Like, what do I do? I followed up with him. So he connected me with Wells Fargo. He's speaking at an event in a few weeks in the city, which was a Wells Fargo REIT conference. I didn't know what this was, but I was honored I got to go. Beautiful event. Turns out it was for analysts, like stock analysts, to interview CEOs of REIT for like financial commentary. I thought it was just like another networking thing. I, I, mean, I literally had absolutely no idea, but was so excited that I got to go. So I decided to ask questions during these sessions because I wanted people to know who I was. Okay, but I didn't understand that these are all stock analysts and this is like a public forum for financial, right? And now like this is a big deal. So I just started asking questions, the different speakers and everyone was so kind and generous, but I could tell they just kind of looking at me like, what? Like, who is she? What are you even asking about? So after a few of these, I was like, I don't know. Like the reception is not quite what I was expecting here. I thought these were good questions. Of course, now I understand the world a lot differently. But I look back and I'm like, oh my goodness. I am sure everyone in that room was like, who invited this person? And why is she talking right now? So that was pretty embarrassing looking back. But thankfully, I didn't realize how embarrassing it was in the moment. So I guess it could have been worse. So... I have to ask, did the gentleman who invited you to the event ever say anything to you about it or? No, I don't know that I saw him there. If I did, it was like, hello, like we weren't close (laughs) at the time. And again, we've done work together and I I know him well now, but it's just, it was very funny. So I guess he didn't get any pushback or no one connected the dots to bring up to him. Like, why did you include this person on the list? So hopefully, hopefully anyway. There you go. Yeah, most embarrassing stories that we have on here usually involve like one or two people knowing like, oh, you know, we had somebody who called Target on their first day of yeah. leasing. It was like, Target, I have a store across the street. Like, why are you calling me about this site? <laughs> but that's only between them and you. And well, until they come on this podcast and the millions and millions of listeners right. that we have get to digest it. But it sounds like you embarrassed yourself publicly, which is pretty impressive. You know, yeah, you're not shy. Can't be shy in this business. It's going to take the good with the bad. I love it. And obviously this is being done, you know, only to where people can hear, but I have the opportunity to to read Carly's facial reactions. Like she, just so the listeners can hear this, like she really means what she's saying. Like she's not flushed, like rolling with the punches, which I love. I love that. So, you know, the way that we look at deals and the way that we look at sort of putting ourselves out here is what's the worst that could happen? And it did and didn't seem like that big of a deal. So good for you. I love how you handle that. So aside from the embarrassing story and some original success, getting a guy to buy a Walgreens, Tell us about your progress and what happens at, at Marcus. So was able to build out a team at Marcus and of course, solidify the business plan to what I'm still doing today, which is national single tenant retail sales and multi-tenant in the Northeast. And really just continue to hone in on that specific business plan. I learned early on and I still feel today that... Time out, time out, time out, time out. Carly, you're making it seem like it's no big deal that you've like built a team. We went from buying one wall, representing a guy buying one Walgreens to a team. You got to tell us. I know you're being humble and I appreciate it. And you kind of like slipped off how you became incredibly successful so quickly, but like we need those details. That's important. So, how did you build the momentum after getting that first Walgreens deal done to doing more deals? Like, what was your repetitive secret sauce outside of your secret sauce reference? Outside of your networking, A, and B, like, how did you know when it was time to build a team? And what did that process and makeup look like? I worked extremely... I still work extremely hard. And I know that's kind of a cliche, but I was always trying to to learn more, be more in-depth and, and dive into the business deeper than anyone else was. Because I felt that I was coming from behind being a woman, unfortunately, and also being newer in the business. I had to be smarter and know more in every conversation if I was ever to get deals done. 
So if I was selling drugstores, which was a focus of mine in the beginning, I dove in deep on Walgreens and CVS and Rite Aid's earnings. And their, I listened to their investor calls and I tried to figure out their business model. And I memorized all the comps in the market. And I, I really approached it very data-driven so that I felt I was going into every conversation with knowledge that maybe other brokers weren't sharing. Just any sort of unique angle I could come to. So that was number one. Then I started focusing on zero cash flow deals because they're complicated and a lot of brokers weren't doing it. So I thought, wow, this seems to be something that's interesting. There's a finance, there's a tax angle to it. If I can figure this out, maybe this is a unique way to drive my business because they're hard, they're complicated. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners don't know what a zero cash flow deal is. And I think that... It's cool to get technical in the real estate for a second because this is a podcast about successful people in real estate. And I definitely want to point out and reemphasize the obvious takeaway, which is doing what other people aren't doing and giving yourself a competitive advantage is, is an opportunity to catapult your career, which you were able to do in a short amount of time at Marcus. So kudos to you. But tell us quickly what a zero cash flow deal is and why you were able to uniquely position yourself as a result. So on a high level... It is a financial structure where the debt perfectly matches the income from the tenant. So the investment throws off zero cash flow, hence the name. But there are all these other ancillary benefits, this type of investment, which makes them attractive. Low equity, your debt is self-amortizing, it's very long-term, there are tax shelter benefits. So it's a piece of a portfolio for more savvy investors for a very specific need. Now, how they work, how they're they're traded is different. They're not cap rate deals. They're traded as a percentage of equity over the debt. So they're underwritten and they're looked at very differently than other types of net lease deals. Thank you for the clarification. Because at Zig, our version of a zero cash flow deal is just buying a vacant piece of real estate and hoping we can figure it out. Different. That is also <laughs> zero cash flow, but that's not the traditional sense of a zero cash flow investment. Of course. That's great. That's a soon-to-be cash flow investment, yours. There you go. We're trying, that's for sure. So you specialize in zero cash flow. About what threshold of how many deals you did or volume that you did before you brought on a teammate? And who was that first teammate from like a positional standpoint? It was so long ago. I don't remember how many deals or what the... I don't know that there was a benchmark that I was like, okay, I've made this amount. Now I can bring someone on. I, I don't remember that, but... I guess the better question is, is, how did you know it was the right time to scale? So I started with... They had a program at Marcus. It's called the SIP program where it was like half analyst, uh, half admin support, half broker in training, so the role. And I thought, gosh, well, this might be a nice transition. I like mentoring. I feel like I have a good hold on the business now that I have enough I can share knowledge-wise to help other people, which I've always been a passion of mine. So, And I need admin support. I have more work that... I shouldn't be doing only from a time perspective. And it would be wonderful if I had help, but I'm not quite in a position to hire an assistant full-time that I would have had to pay for out of pocket. So, so I had a SIP for a year and that was just sort of a starting point. And then I realized that those are, in my mind, two very different roles. And I don't think they should be the same person. I don't think the program was great. I couldn't agree anymore. I've never understood that. That concept, and it happens in brokerage companies and principals all over the country, and I don't get it. Yeah, I don't think it's a match. But that's what was offered to me. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then I got in and I was like, no, it's not the right person really for either role, although very nice person. So that, you know, stopped participating in that program at Marcus and then hired an assistant. And then I don't remember what the deal flow was, but there's a certain amount of deal flow you have to have before you bring on juniors. So whatever that number was, I'd met it. And then Marcus has a constant revolving hiring concept where they're always bringing new people in. So I was able to interview them and see if one was a fit and then got my first junior agent that way, who was with me for quite a few years, actually, before he transitioned into a different industry. So started that way. And then I think the most pivotal point in my career was getting really quality admin support and transaction support because that allowed me to focus on what I do best, which is connecting with clients and really the overall relationship and deal process. Those are my two key strengths. So not being bogged down by pulling comps and doing OMs and things like that. 
just was such a turning point in my career. And my assistant now is still with me. It's been, she's been over five years. I had several before her that were really the starting point of this, but having that stability and that support was crucial. Nice. So what does the makeup now look like within your purview? Yeah. So our team's a little bit different now. We moved to CBRE two years ago, which has been fantastic. I love the platform, love the the company, very different type of business. And it's different. My assistant and I who are doing the NetLease sales nationally, and then we have a group of 24 who are the NetLease team at CBRE. So we work collaboratively in different states, but we're not on one not Carly's team. It's not Ian's team. It's, it's our NetLease group nationally. So it's a different structure than we had at Market. And then we have sort of sister teams in the office that do things like multifamily who give us exchange buyers or industrial. So it's very cohesive, but different model. We don't have the junior brokers calling. We have these different professionals and different verticals that we pull in when we need to. Gotcha. So going back to your time at Marcus, you had some success, built out the team there. What ultimately made you leave? Mm, was ready for a different experience. And I felt that we were short in being able to offer our clients a comprehensive solution. Marcus is just investment sales. Extremely grateful for my time there. They wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have those years there. So that goes without saying. But I like being able to add leasing services, appraisal, property management, whatever our clients need. I want to be able to, to say, no problem. I can help you. I've got your back. Here you go. So the scale and scope of CBRE I've found to be very helpful. It's just a, a very professional corporate environment, which of course comes with pros and cons, but that was one of the main drivers. And it was recruiting. You know, we'd been recruited by a lot of firms or I had been for lot of years. And it just seemed like the right time. Fair enough. And is this what you're doing now, what you ultimately wanted when you kind of pivoted out of your yacht business to commercial real estate? Like, What was your long-term vision? And have you achieved that? Or, or what does that look like? I love what I do. I really do. I love helping people. I love the deals. Every day is different. I appreciate the flexibility. I love that there is ultimate financial runway, make as much money as you can. If your skills keep increasing, I think it's a fantastic industry and part of the business to be in. I'm also investing personally, which I think you've probably heard over and over every broker ever, right? We're going to start in brokerage until we can make enough money to go to the principal side. So I'm grateful to be adding that layer, which is just something I would like to continue to focus on long-term as well. Love that you brought that up. And to your point, you're right. I've heard it a few times. <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, when I told a select few people that I was going out of my own, everybody sort of looks at it like, yeah, okay. Like, because everybody talks about it that's on the brokerage or similar to brokerage type of background. And it, it just makes me so happy to hear that you're actually executing on investing and you don't have to get into any details if you don't want to. But I think we'd all, you know, especially the, the younger folks that are currently in brokerage right now who have that desire, like, what does that look like for you? I wish I would have started sooner. And I think everyone says that. I think the key is... So I'm investing my own now, but I may bring on partners for future deals. I'd like to try to buy something every year if I can. But I think when you're earlier in your career, finding a client that you trust, finding a group of other brokers to pool money, whatever you can do, it doesn't have to be a big investment, but just starting, giving money to Aaron, whatever whoever you trust and you believe in their business model, the key is starting and being part of a deal before you have it all figured out. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I would wish I would have started sooner than I did too. And I think relatively, people would probably think that I started quote unquote early. It's awesome to hear that coming from you as a successful woman in brokerage, saying that and preaching that gospel. Our friend Beth Azor, obviously, is big on that. And so I'm really glad that that's one of the key takeaways from you that you're able to shed light on with the audience. And you're never going to be ready, right? Like when you wrote that first check in your first deal, like what were the feelings like for you at that time? Oh my God, what am I doing? What if it's a terrible idea? I know too much. I know too little. Maybe I should have bought somewhere else or something else. It's 
all of that because it's your own money. And I tend to overthink things. And in being in the business, you know all the things that can go wrong. But you also know all the things that go right. So it took a while to make that first leap. So I think getting out of your way sooner is the takeaway. And you don't have to start with a ton of money. Just start with whatever you're comfortable with and then partner with someone that you trust. I didn't do that. I went all in on my own and had to have enough money saved that I could do it that way. So I had complete control of the deal. But I think it would have been smarter to start earlier in a different scenario. Also an interesting perspective because I looked at it like I took the opposite approach. And I've always been fascinated by people who are just like, I'm going to go on and do it myself. So appreciate that as well. So had some success at Marcus, decided to go to CB for the reasons that you mentioned before, doing some investing now. Going back to that question, just to press you again. I mean, is this what you wanted? And if not, like, what is it that you ultimately thought you wanted? And have your dreams become reality? I guess is the question I'm asking. Your commercial real estate dreams. I would say yes. And not completely. Because if I said yes, then that would mean this is it. This is the pinnacle. And I don't know that I will ever feel that way. I think I'm on a great path. I'm proud of everything I've achieved. I love my business, love the industry. And there will be other iterations of my career. There'll be things that I add. Do I have that all figured out yet? No. And maybe it's continuing to do exactly what I do, but adding more investing. But there could be other elements to it too. I think I just don't know what's next. But I'm always pushing to keep learning and growing and evolving. I think that's crucial. And it's just deep in my DNA. So I will not ever just say like, this is it. I can't. And I love that you look at the world in like a cyclical way in the sense that you want to absorb as much as you can. But no one is a bigger cheerleader of yours than I am as far as what you give out and put out there the Fast Five and Secret Sauce and all that stuff. And by the way, shameless plug that for Carly that she didn't even ask me to do. But you can send a check if you want to our office in Charlotte. <laughs> Carly, you provide unbelievable, concise content to be put out there. I promise you, I could, it happens regularly. I forward your marketing stuff that you put out there like Secret Sauce and Fast Five to our team on a regular basis. Like, hey, this is a great way to get educated on zero cash flow deals or what's going on in the net lease sector or whatever. And I think it, I would be doing our listeners a disservice by not informing them that that exists if they haven't consumed what you have. And if they have, I want to say thank you on behalf of everybody who gets to because it is well done and it is worth it. And sometimes... And believe me, I know what it's like to be on the other side. You put stuff out there and you're like, does anybody even care that I'm doing this? And so, and I'm sure you get a ton of great feedback, but just in case you don't hear it enough, thank you. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for saying that. A lot does go into it. And it's been just over two years that we've been running the series now. So a lot of episodes, a lot of work. And two things I'll say on this. The first is when I started in my career, I had a scarcity mentality because that's very common with brokers. We're competing. We're not going to tell anyone what we know. We're not going to share. We're certainly not going to connect with brokers on LinkedIn. Like it's all highly cutthroat, right? And I had bought into that for years. And then I thought, probably about three years ago, four years ago, what if I did it differently? What if I just share what I know and help people with no expectation? Will this help educate some of my competition? Sure. Okay. But if that's my only competitive advantage, then I'm not doing my job well enough anyway. So I've taken the opposite approach. Instead of holding all my cards very close to my vest, I now really enjoy, and it's multiplied the business in many ways, sharing. Sharing what I know for clients, helping other brokers. People call me all the time from other companies. What do I do in this situation? What do you think about this? And and I'm very genuine in helping people. And I have found that it's a much more enjoyable way to do business, much more enjoyable way to live. And there are benefits monetarily as well, but that's not the main focus. But it was a big shift in mindset when I started this series. Well, I'm glad that that mindset shift and risk... I mean, you took a risk, right? Has paid off for you as well as it has. No one is more deserving and entitled to it than, than you are. So 
Congratulations on all of it. Thank you. Now, we know that marketing is a strength of yours. We know that you can negotiate based on your debate background. We know that you're hardworking and you know, well-spoken and all these things, but you got to have a weakness. And assuming that you do, which I think everybody does, what is it and how do you navigate it? Hmm. So funny. The first thing that came to mind actually makes me laugh. I just work too hard. So I'm not going to say that because that's the weakness. It's not a weakness that everyone says. I think being too hard on myself is definitely a weakness and it's taken some time to enjoy life and not just be so intense all the time. I don't relax well. I don't watch TV ever. I'm just always like, okay, what else could I be accomplishing right now? Like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. I'm like, hmm, okay, what else should I do before I go to bed? Maybe I'll restain the stairs in my garage. Like crazy stuff that I'll do. Restain the stairs at 10 o'clock at night? Yeah, I've done stuff like that. Yeah. That's aggressive. <laughs> That's aggressive. It's not, for sure. So finding a balance to that accomplishment versus just like, okay, like it's okay if I'm not doing anything productive right now. It's okay. And I struggle with that balance for sure. Can understand that. And what's the craziest deal you've ever worked on? Craziest deal. Hmm. And by the way, we're at the part of the show now, in case you haven't picked up on it, where I'm trying to throw you off as much as humanly possible by asking these quick questions. Thanks for that, Aaron. Yeah, enjoy. Not. <laughs> <laughs> craziest deal. I guess it would depend on how you define crazy. There's some interesting deals that I've done that, I don't know, were less typical. I've had some very intense clients who were crazy in their own right. I don't know that I have a good clear answer for that. I think every deal is a bit crazy. I know it's a generic response, probably very unsatisfying. But I think that's what makes our business fun, that no deal is ever the same. And there's certainly some that have been a little more stressful than others for personalities or things that came up in the deal. But I have a good deal story ready for you on that front. You know, I'm thinking about it as you answer the question. I got to imagine that some of the personalities that you've come across, especially being in New York, like... Uh, quite amazing array of characters, for sure. And keeping your cool and being professional, dealing with all of these very large personalities is part of the job description and absolutely required. Some days much easier than others. But yes, it's quite a cast of characters. What is your best advice for someone who's either trying to break into commercial real estate or who's been doing it for not that long of a period of time, say a couple of years or less? Find your unique value in the market. Don't try to be everything. When I first started, I know I shared kind of some of my first deals I worked on, but I was really reluctant to say no to any business that would come in. I tried to sell a vacant piece of property in Brooklyn. No business, even like pretending I knew that, right? And everything you work on takes you farther in that direction. So really figure out what you want your career to look like, even if it doesn't look like that at the beginning. So the example, when I went back to my manager and said, I want to sell national tenants only on a national scale. Well, every deal that I took on that wasn't like that or wasn't a creative to my business plan kind of changed the branding. So figure out what you want to be doing and try to put that out into the market, either with commentary, or hopefully listings, but whatever you can do to position yourself as an expert in that space. And don't worry about the rest of it. Refer out the other business, things that you're not an expert on, don't pretend you are. I love that advice and something that we're constantly trying to remain focused on here. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times we've been asked, like, do you guys do brokerage too to like keep the lights on? And no, like we don't want to bite the hand that feeds us A and B. We want to be known as the best acquirer and operator of value-add retail real estate across the country. And we're sitting here brokering, you know, office deals or something. It just it compromises that brand and that vision. And it's short-term instant gratification for getting in the way of your long-term vision. And it's so nice to see that actually get executed successfully by you. And it's an inspiration for us. So thank you. You seem like a reader. You're a reader? I used to read all the time. I have been reading less, but I do still enjoy learning and reading things outside of my particular. I mean, I read a ton of news now, of course, always reading industry articles and news, which absorbs a lot of my time. But I like to read things kind of outside the normal sphere too, to change my perspective on things. What's the best book you've ever read? Mm, I do not have an answer for that. But I have one that I'm reading right now, which I think is fascinating, which I'll share with you. 
It's by Mark Salem called The Six Keys to Unlock and Empower Your Mind. He is, I don't know if you'd call him a, a mentalist or a mind reader, but he, he's not. And he's very clear in his book that he does not, his ability to read people's minds does not come from any like supernatural element. He is exceptionally good at reading body language and understanding how people interact and, and what they sort of show about what they're thinking. So it's a book about, I guess, understanding how to read people better. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. And that is something that can have application to any industry, any relationship. So I appreciate that. And as I'll do shamelessly, I will let everybody know that we do put these books up that our guests recommend on the Zig website. So if you're looking for good reading recommendations, inclusive of Carly's, which I'm actually excited to dive into at some point, feel free to check that out. And here we are, drum roll, if you will, metaphoric virtual drum roll. We asked this question to everybody. Oh, no. And you don't get to scoot away <laughs> from it either. It's the last one, but it's always the one that gets people thinking the deepest, if you will. When you decide to eventually shut it off, which doesn't look like is anytime soon, nor would anybody let you because you're too damn good at what you do and we all like you too much. But one of these days, you're eventually going to shut it down. You're going to go hang out at the beach or decide to do something else, maybe another yacht business, who knows. When you do that, when you make that decision, the trade publications that you consume on a daily basis are all going to go crazy and they're going to say, holy moly, Kyle Iacono's retiring or doing something else or whatever. When those articles come out, what do you want them to say about you and your legacy to be like in this business? That I elevated the industry in a way other people hadn't by making it more collaborative, more open, more, I guess, respectful. That it was a pleasure doing business with me and our team and that I gave more to the industry than I got out of it. Love that. Carly, thank you so much. I had high expectations. You overachieved them just like you did in everything else in life or have done no, so far with everything else. No, don't say that. <laughs> no. But thank you. Yeah, of course. Obviously, very impressive. Couldn't have been more excited to have you on and flattered that you were able to take the time to join us. And thank you so much. We'll catch up soon. Thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate the opportunity. Great to see you. Thanks for listening to Limitless how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did in fact get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 